Hi everyone. Just a quick note before we start the show. This is going to be a little bit different this week because, uh, well, for one thing, it's Craig, the co-host, birthday. So everybody wish him good vibes. We gave him the weekend off to get nutty. And uh, I will have Aaron Martin, a friend and former student of mine from California in. He's been on the podcast before, so you might recognize him. And we revisit for the first time a former guest uh, that didn't become a show regular like uh, somebody like Sambo Steve. Uh, Alan Pittman comes back on to have a little chat with us. Um, this one's kind of loose and a little laid back. It's cobbled together, but we enjoyed it. And I think you will too. And also I want to remind everybody stick around at the end of the show. We have another segment from Jeff Westfall, a listener, uh, <laughs> a listener donated segment. What the hell would you call it? Anyway, uh, of his Marshall Mind series, and uh, he has been working behind the scenes to improve the recording quality of these things, and I think he's doing a good job. Uh, so check it out. Stick around for that, and make sure you give him feedback, too. All of his information uh, for feedback is in the segment itself. All right, with all that being said, away we go. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination, I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to hi the only podcast so badass it flosses with a chain whip. That's right, folks. Episode something or other, <laughs> just check your show notes, starts now. <laughs> All right. I'm here in the studio with my uh, once yearly, this is Dave, by the way, with my once yearly or so co-host, uh, Aaron Martin. Hello, everyone. Uh, Good to be here. Yeah. Fresh, well, not fresh in from Cali. He's actually about to jump out the door on the way back. But uh, we had a conversation with Alan Pittman that we're going to play for you in this episode. And uh, uh, you're probably not going to be aware that he's there the whole time because he just had his mouth agape and was... Uh, <laughs> I think you hear me giggling uh, periodically. Yeah, I think he fell asleep. <laughs> uh, I was in awe. I was in awe. Yeah, right. Of us? <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh-huh. Um, flattery will get you nowhere. Oh, Time for that has passed. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how's things out in Cali? Cali's good. Um, just to contextualize things here. Um, I had the honor and pleasure of being Dave's sole student during his Cali days. There were a few people that passed through, but I was the lucky one that I had them all to myself. Not really. I didn't even want to do it. <laughs> I was forced into the position. He was persistent. <laughs> oh, well, no, he got my wife to get, get me to promise to call back. So. <laughs> I, I just kept calling. I was like, well, I'll, I'll keep calling. Don't want to be too pushy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he called me back and then I told him, uh, well, here's the deal. You can show up early in the morning and we'll do it before I go to work. But I'm also on call for my job a lot. So if I get a phone call, I may not even be there or I may have to walk out in the middle of it. Sound like fun. It, it was awesome. I made the coffee for the yep. many, many days a week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Made the coffee. And in return, I made you bicycle across Santa Cruz with a backpack full of bricks. <laughs> this is true. This, this is true. I forgot about it. See, I can that. tell you now, that didn't even have anything to do with Kung Fu. I just like to fuck with you. <laughs> so it's uh, bricks in the backpack. Well, right, right. Well, didn't, uh, didn't Craig put you through all kinds of 
kung fu craziness no, playing yeah. music and yeah we, we'll, <laughs> we'll go there when we've got craig in the room. <laughs> gotta give the man a chance to defend yeah, hear that craig <laughs> and we actually did use the bricks sometimes oh yeah, yeah. definitely so just to shout out, Dave wouldn't do it for himself. But uh, if you are curious about Bagua and Gao Bagua in particular, he is a fantastic teacher and you should definitely look into him. I don't mm. know. Should they go to paths or? No, I'm not on the side anymore. You know what? I'm going to edit that whole part out anyway. So oh, we might as well it. just uh, move along. See? That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, so yeah, Kelly's great. Um, so now what? It's been, I guess you were just saying, it's been almost 10 years that um, I've been doing our stuff. And uh, I have not been teaching people, but I've been practicing Gal Bagua out there on my own for a number of years and dabbling in, in other communities. Um, at present, I've been training with some folks out there, um, a teacher by the name of Matt Lucas, who has also spent a lot of time in Georgia. I'm going to try to get him to interview. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Who's, uh, he teaches mixed martial arts, but it's not like cage fighting focused, though I know he trains people that do that. Um, uh, and, uh, kind of the, and, you know, please, once, if he get if we get him on here, we'll get him to describe it. So my experience is, uh, one of the main things that he trains is this, uh, Persian style called Nabard, um, which reminds me a lot of the internal Chinese internals, like circular continuous movement, weaponizing the whole body, yeah. uh, so on. And then he also does a, a martial kind of a, a modified Ashtanga yoga um, to teach kind of martial arts conditioning and principles. Yama. Calls it Yama. Yeah, yoga, yoga as martial, martial arts. arts. Yeah, indeed. Jinx, you owe me a beer. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I guess I've been out there with him for almost two years now. Before that, I trained with Tong Shadao. When Dave left me, I had to find somebody to keep training with. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's good to get out there and spread your wings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, it was great. Appreciate every minute that I did. Yeah. You know? Well, I appreciate you doing it. Yeah. I don't have a lot of people that go the distance and actually learn the whole system, so that right there is a ring of ding. Uh, thank you, sir. Oh, anyway, uh, enough about us. Uh, we, <laughs> well, we had some fun while you were down here so far. Indeed. Uh, Got to that, play with the old timers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the old people were out. Um, awesome. The big Al Pittman came down and did a class, mm-hmm. which that's getting pretty rare these days. He right. flits about to Europe and whatnot, but we'll, right. he'll be talking about that. You'll hear interview. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else to say about your trip? We had some good food. Oh man, some some awesome Chinese Northern China, the Northern China North Northern China eatery, North China eatery, which you could very easily just pass by on the road and not even know that it was there because it's on the side of a building and a hiding under hiding Italy lower. optical <laughs> on Buford Highway. <laughs> but awesome Chinese food. They had um, soup dumplings. Fucking love soup dumplings. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, various authentic northern Chinese yeah. cuisine. And, and then we just had some banh mi. Yeah. 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 I had the, the crispy noodle, whatchamacallit. Yeah, a little bird's nest with all the deliciousness yeah. on top. Mm-hmm. Vegetables and, you know, yep. treasures from sky, earth, and sea. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, it's always said that you can't make chicken soup out of chicken poop. <laughs> but apparently they do make bird's nest soup out of bird's nest so oh, this, this is true this is true <laughs> that's Swal- not what that, i had I, that's, that's swallow's nest no this was noodles dry in the shape noodles, of- yeah <laughs> yeah um lots of foo here it was it was 
it was fun. Big went to uh, Big Al's Shingy class, mm-hmm. and um, we were just covering some night, you know, awesome principles like focusing on splitting and drilling, and and then Alan showed up and just asked questions from everyone. I guess without further ado, we'll go ahead and pump it through to the interview, and uh, we'll be right back afterwards. I've got me steel bones, got ice water in my veins. I was born to my mother's scorn, and I'll never be the same. All the people that walk by, lucky that they don't die. Pittman and uh, Aaron Martin, that you may remember from episode uh, 20-something or other about a year ago, he sent in. Um, and uh, we've been sitting around talking everything else under the sun all damn day, and we're still sweaty from working out this morning. So we thought Indeed. maybe we'd spend a few minutes and talk some talk some martial arts, because we know you people out there in listener land love to hear that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, also we've had some requests to get uh, Pittman back on the show. Basically, they amounted to uh, your interviewing tactics sucked on <laughs> when you first started. <laughs> you might want to have Pittman back on because he kind of got ripped off. Uh, <laughs> uh, so as long as we got you in the room, let's real quickly, let's tell them what we did today. All right. Yeah, either one of you can go. Okay, I'll Here. start. Well, uh, we started the morning off with an awesome uh, Shingy class led by Al, Big Al Carroll. Mm-hmm. And, Everybody uh, listening to Hi-Yah should know who Big Al is. Yeah, he's been around. Um, we were focusing on splitting and drilling and little variations on that. You, you guys didn't do any fracking, did you? Because no. Because that's bad. There was no fracking. Okay, just drilling. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, no. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just a little deep, you know, a few leaks here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Alan showed up, and we had an awesome smorgasbord of uh, internal martial arts. Yeah. Awesomeness. Yeah. We went from... How well, did it start? We, we started out with... We started out with oh wow, I can definitely hear myself better when yeah. I'm See, right that's in front the of thing. the mic. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's fun when you get martial now. arts meatheads in here and I have to teach them mic technique. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like we're all in a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We started with Phoenix. Oh, we started with Phoenix, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, people had different the, things the, they wanted to do. The form I can never remember all the way through. Because <laughs> it's a hodgepodge. It's a long a form, yeah. and it is a hodgepodge. And uh, I was able to get with a museum curator and translate that particular phoenix name in Chinese, and it turns out it's a bird with uh, about four different animals connected together. Oh. So it actually is a sort of 
hodgepodge attempt chimera. to put together the animals into a uh, uh, a sequence. It's a chimera. Yeah, mm. it's a chimera. Mm. I, and it may be the same as what some teachers call zasher. Hmm. That might be the linking animal form. I've never been able to get straight poop on that. But mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> the phoenix is a, is a linkage form into bagua, so it has body rotation. It has, strangely, some of the same techniques as Sun Lutong's bagua, and they don't occur as clearly in the, the bagua that goes with this xingyi. Right. So it is the transition form into Bagua. Um, you know, granted, it's not done like karate or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's got 180 degree turning and uh, and immediately turning another 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically attack this way, attack that way, attack this way, attack that way. Uh-huh. And then some, you know, some straight line stuff straight out of the second uh, linking form, I think. Those deep lungy punches. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the we only did a portion of it today, so well, we just did the first, probably the first quarter, because you know eventually you don't want someone who can just run through movement. So I tend to condense everything into doing a movement, doing an application, then doing reps on that with a partner and reps without, so that hopefully what lodges in the student's mind is the movement, the form, and the application as a unity, because they really feed on one another. Right. Otherwise, you end up with some pretty movements, and you're clueless, mm-hmm. or you have an application, and your weight's in the wrong leg, and you don't know what the implications are other than you've smacked the guy, you know, anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, part of what I love about this stuff is it's, you know, it's an onion with a bunch of layers on it. So you learn a, you learn a tactic, or a linear, or something like that, and you play it out in stages right the first thing you do is well let's play with this on a straight attack yeah okay next thing you do let's play with this if it's a hooking attack mm-hmm. same movement same principle involved yes. in that then let's throw a kick in let's throw well let me see what you think about this because this is not something we really did much of in class but i've incorporated like you know in each linear i want somebody to know an inside and an outside application and then yep. we will see if it's applicable to kicking or to, good to stuff like that but what i've started to to, to do lately is also uh, from a clinch. Yeah. Hmm. Each one of the linears, just let's do it from a clinch and let's see what happens. Well, and, you notice we did that today with the tiger. Mm-hmm. We looked at it from the clinch. And the clinch obviously is where wrestling begins. Right. And traditionally, in a, in a Chinese art, they would be aware of, of that. Uh, but there's been serious devolving steps in Chinese martial arts from about 1900 to I would say 1940 and uh, and then again in the 1970s there's been a declension of how to train the forms that they've preserved right and so <clears throat> there's been serious technical te- tactical gaps in in wushu and particularly in people who have learned uh, modern Chinese martial arts, t- they tend to have beautifully polished forms without a sense of how to vary it, apply it, or prioritize. And this is what I find is the greatest weakness with most practitioners is which techniques are most important. This right. is where there's a lot of confusion. Right. And so they'll often choose the wrong one and go to the wrong angle and end up in a bad spot because they really haven't been trained as far as what's important and what isn't. Yeah, and and being 
being taught that application A is for tactic X, you know, this fits right. this like a, you know, it's it seems to me like everything should be for whatever, right? Yeah, you well, learn different tactics so you don't have to respond the same way to everything. Exactly. And I have a I have a Cliff Notes version of that which is I will try as a kind of piece of lab work or experiment, I'll do the same application at three heights to the outside, head, torso, legs, three okay. heights to the inside, head, mm. torso, mm. legs. And you quickly see where it can actually work and where you've got serious problems. Right, and should probably be doing something different. Exactly. But if you, if you use that as a sort of assessment point, try your application three ways on the outside of the leading arm and three ways on the inside, then you can eliminate the gaps. You can eliminate the defects and find out, well, it's obviously only good for this. And I've kind of gone through the whole system with that assessment so, right. so that I default, I default the technique to its best angle. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And the idea, of course, is always, if you can, you take an angle with it, you know. Sure. It's Bagua, so we're not going to, it's not <laughs> Shingy, so most of the time we're not running force against force or straight into someone's territory. Well, it's a question of weight. Uh, some of the Shingy men in history, like Shang Shung, was fairly heavy and short, and he was known for coming straight up, mm -hmm. straight up the middle, but very low to the ground. So... Jay Jai, the carriage driver who taught um, Deng Yunfeng and some of these others that came down into Rose Lee, that's where I picked up some of this. That school tends to be very low because it came from a guy who was down there in weight and size. But if you teach, try to teach that to a tall person, it's kind of pointless right. because they're not optimizing their potential in any way. Right. So there's real issues of uh, mimicking the teacher and whether that's good or bad, and are you taught to think and assess yourself in relationship to the technique? Yeah. Uh, well, somebody like Harold in Big Al's class, you know, to, to try to make Harold do super low stances would just be crippling his ability to fight. You know? Yeah, because he's, he's a big, tall guy. Yeah, it's going to slow him down and bring him down where I can reach your head now. You know? <laughs> Why would you want to do that? Yeah, there's a couple of, of easy of easy things as far as prioritizing tactics. One is anytime the hands are going down, uh, it'll work better for the taller man. Yeah. Whatever you're doing. If mm -hmm. your hands are going down, it's to your advantage if you're taller. Right. Any movement that involves lifting the hands is better used against someone who's taller than you are. Right. Uh, and I often say to students who have a tactical interest, I'll say... If he's shorter than you, you'll find it's quite easy to get to his head. But, and, and whereas if he's taller, you're not going to get to his head. You're going to get to his arm right. first. And you're definitely not going to attack down on it. No. no. <laughs> well, what works better on those guys, if you're short, is to get close and lift with something. You know, like like setting up, you know, to do like the tiger press out to either side or something. Yeah. You know, I, Bruce or somebody taller and bigger than me like that. I find it's not so much, he's got good legs, so pushing into his angle fold, unless mm -hmm. I cause some pain or something, doesn't knock him down. No, too heavy. But if I position myself right, the lift of the elbow and having my leg behind him, he'll fall down from that because he's taller than me, and it, it, if he doesn't, you know, it takes away his root. Right, yeah, there's, a, there's also confusion in some forms where the, the uh, if you look at a string of movements as a sentence, a phrase... 
Well, as you know, we might inhale before we speak. And there are a lot of movements that have a point of inhale or preliminary movement before you do them. Okay. Uh, like when a batter hits a baseball, you'll see him pull the bat before he does the release. And he has you to load it up first. He has yeah. to load it up. And the art is in knowing when to load up. Right. And a lot of, there's a lot of understanding and misunderstanding about when do you load up, where, what does that mean? So I would say that if you're evaluating or assessing a form, you need to find out where these load-up points are. And what's interesting is a traditionalist might learn the load-up points from simply doing the movements without the reference to another person, without an right. opponent. When in reality, if you work with a partner, you'll quickly find out where the load-up points have to be. Mm-hmm. And that's and so you, you can learn it to a certain extent by like say you're doing splitting up and down the field or yeah. some simple form. Yeah. Well, you know, you expand, you do the tactic, and then the follow step and everything is the load up. So you get a, a rhythmic sort of load up going by yeah. practicing by yourself. Yes. But you can't do it that rhythmically if you have a partner or if you want to no. get something over on. In something. fact, in fact, it's it's safe to say that rhythmic training is particularly to perfect the sense of your own body. Breathing, rhythm, alignment, pulse, heartbeat, balance. It's great for, uh, I would say, perfecting your own sense of your body. Mm -hmm. and, and the rhythm helps grind in all the body habits that should transfer to correct movement later right programming when my arm goes out this yeah. way my foot goes here yeah, yeah. you're you're yeah. you're put you're putting the program in and that's what you need the reps for and mm -hmm. all of my teachers emphasized high reps and by high i'm talking about an eighth of a mile on one form on one form yeah well didn't and, you say hung used to show up with the cigarette dangling out of his mouth just splitting down the road oh yeah we'd, <laughs> awesome. we'd do a good quarter mile See with the tip that glowing in the dark yeah <laughs> yeah in the early morning and then he'd throw it down and look at me and say now let's go yeah <laughs> and that was when we really bent our knees and went for it mm -hmm. and so this idea of high rep was something he really liked he didn't like holding postures he didn't like static postures he wanted you to move repetitiously until the movement was so natural that it was effortless. So this idea of programming the effortless effortlessness through repetition was a key point to him. So mm -hmm. your response to someone is extremely efficient and apparently very casual. Right. But it's very efficient because you're so familiar with the movement. Right. There's no extraneous movement no. to do what you're trying to do. No. So it doesn't your response may be not very dramatic, but yeah. it'll be the correct one. Well, in a sense, it just hit me. High reps are brilliant for training that, for training economy of movement, because you get tired doing high reps of well, stuff. And you start, you know, it's like, okay, I want to keep this correct, but how's the easiest possible way for me to do it? Yeah, I know. You know I, it's I used it's to have, good cheating. Is, I had this know. talk with Hal Mosier. I'd say, how many times do you do a form before it feels right? Because mm. I found I needed to do about 20 reps per form, and he was pretty good at about 15. But I found at about 20, I, between 16 and 20, I was starting, I'd start to get a little structural fatigue, mm -hmm. and it would force me to be efficient. Right. I'd have to take a deep breath and kind of squeeze out that last bit. Now, Wan La Shung writes about this in his old inner and outer work text in about 1947, I think. And what he said was, 
with the Zurenchuen, with the natural boxing and probably other systems too, you deliberately took the student to the point of fatigue so that it forced them to be efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this would be a kind of art of teaching mm-hmm. technique. Right. Because you obviously, you don't want to be uh, counterproductive. You don't want to just kill the poor student. Right. You, you, want, to, you want them to do enough reps to get tired and to work on that efficiency level and then stop. Because obviously at a certain point, there's the law of diminishing returns. Yeah. And you don't want them to, to develop the habit that, of course, I had at one time as a young man, which was to always practice to full exhaustion. Yeah. Because <laughs> that leaves you nothing for the next day. Right. And in theory, Naja or the inner school arts were something you did every morning. So you never practiced them to full exhaustion because (laughs) their training was something you did every morning. So in some ways, it was an art of not overtraining. Right. Now, by contrast, like my first exposure to this concept was doing Northern Shaolin with Craig. And um, those were brutal workouts. They would train you pretty much to full exhaustion, but I would only do it twice a week. Yeah, and I was young, you know, but I would do it, and I would take two, three days to recover before I did that. Yeah. I would practice forms and little stuff in between, but mm-hmm. but uh, the whole uh, you know cheating for efficiency uh, concept or fatigue to efficiency, uh, yeah. we would do those line drills up and down, just stretch kicks you or whatever. You. you betcha. And I learned how to. I trained myself to take longer steps because it wasn't about the number of repetitions; it was the distance. Yes, <laughs> and, that's right. And people would start saying, "Dave's cheating. He's he's making these weird big steps." And Craig's like, "No, he's not." cheating he's learned how to cheat correctly yeah because those weird big steps allow you to to traverse the distance between you and an adversary exactly in an unexpectedly fast way and we find this with the the dashing forward in the five fists and shingi you cover you cover an unanticipated amount of distance in reference to your opponent yeah they find it a little odd because in theory most people don't have a stride that matches the stride you develop in Shingi. Right. So you simply shock them by covering distance faster than they usually anticipate covering distance. Yeah, and even something as subtle like in Bagua, if you do something like uh, push, you know, yeah. the the hand goes up, the foot goes out, but then the foot can lift at the, you know the heel touches, but then it can lift a little bit and just move two more inches forward as you push into that foot for the step. Yeah. So people think you're going to be here, and just that two inches of extra space you get mm-hmm. puts you in a much more advantageous well, position this is like the toe out in a lot of forms you shift your weight back and you toe out in mm-hmm. the old days that toe out was a very small lateral step with the heel out okay and yeah. that drops the hips on both sides but what it also does is it, it takes your head offline mm-hmm. and that allows you to to insert your body as a wedge into the posture of the attacker and so it's just a three to four inch lateral step. So it's one of those little things. And when you add it up to a body of movement, it keeps the other person totally off balance because yeah. you're always just in a slightly awkward position in reference to them. Yeah, it makes your movement seem unnatural. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the effect on them is they're always feeling kind of crowded and uncomfortable, but they don't know what it is. Right. So a lot of the body habits from correct form practice ensure uh, solid defensive ability. Mm-hmm. So your body is always in the, in the right place at the right angle in reference to the opponent so that they always feel a little crowded, a little uncomfortable, 
uh, the, the your rear hand is always a little invisible, right? Because you're at about what, thirty to forty five degrees. What's and he they, doing back there? So they can't quite, <laughs> you know, get a solid purchase. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're nose to nose, they can see both hands clearly. Yeah. And and this is you know this is where bad boxing is. Yeah. Or, or other little tricks like you know again that that moving the heel a few more inches before you actually transfer oh, the weight. Yeah. Yeah. If you're throwing your body doing shouldering or something like that. That's one of the hardest things to train students. We were when uh, Aaron was working out with me. We're working out with Travis, and he's he's just starting to get that concept because people think you have to throw it. Oh yeah, you don't throw it. You no. you what you do is they don't notice you doing it, but you put your foot through theirs. So yes. all you're doing is transferring your weight. Right. You're not. Th- it's very natural, but it hits like a ton of bricks because all of your mass is moving with it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the medieval knights, you know, they often had in the armor. They had uh, an iron or a metal penis that was stuck straight out from the hip armor. Now it's a party. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, I saw these suits of armor in the, in the Tower of London. They shipped that up to uh, Leeds in northwest England. But it's four, story, four stories of uh, armor in history. Uh, with a pub and a restaurant and falconry and uh, I would make awesome. a day of that anytime. And yeah, there's yeah. a there's a track for jousting. I mean, they've got the whole nine yards. But looking at this armor with the steel penis, basically you advance forward and you hit you break the guy's pelvis on the first movement unless he's armored too. Right. And so that's the frontal version. Wow. Then if your bodies are are diagonal, say at thirty degrees, you're basically using your hip as the driver. Right. And this was Hung's favorite technique, was simply to slip a punch to the head and then move in laterally and bump them with the shoulder and the hip. Mm-hmm. And when they were off balance, to then begin the attack while they were falling. Yeah. So this is good strategy. And uh, it's always best if the man is off balance while you're hitting so he can't counterpunch. Effectively. Anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> now, you, you'll see with... Uh, for instance, in a screma or in some Western boxing or some Chinese, what I would call slap boxing, because you're not coming in on a diagonal, they always have the option to do an additional parry or strike. Mm-hmm. But you eliminate that if you knock them off balance in the first movement. You're basically stopping their ability to counterpunch because they're falling. Right. And so as, once they're falling, you can really launch the attack. And this is hard to get across to people without showing them, right. but it makes sense. Basically, just imagine you hit someone with your hip or your shoulder or your belly, mm-hmm. and as they're, as they're falling or readjusting their feet, you're attacking. Right. And this is very much a kind of constant principle in Qingyi. And, or your head, if you're Big Al. Well, I was going to say, in the, <laughs> in the Muslim forms, like from Honan, there's a lot of 45-degree leaning forward, mm-hmm. and so you are headbutting them. Uh, so you know, all I tell the students is watch your teeth. You know, don't don't butt into their teeth. Right. You follow the follow the English tradition and butt them on the nose. Or uh, the yeah the, the Chinese the, the Chinese eyes. like the temple. You know, yeah. they they would angle off. They would step off by pulling the arm and headbutt to the temple. Uh, and a wrestler would just you know put an arm around your neck and push on your temple with the head and try to crack the neck that way. Right. Um. But, you know, during the Mongol incursion uh, in China, they, the Chinese boxers or the martial arts guys on the Silk Road were well aware of what wrestling was and about the clinch and the close encounter. So these forms, they often have 
subtle stepping to shift the weight in response to someone who is trying to clinch or pull you down. Okay. And they also combine pulling with hitting, which basically is combining standing grappling with striking. Right. This is really uh, what advances Chinese martial arts into, into something pretty unique, is combining the upright grappling with hitting. Mm-hmm. You, won't see, you won't see that clearly demonstrated in a lot of Western texts. During the bare-knuckle days, they would allow it, but it wasn't done a lot. But they did have a cross buttock. They did have a hip throw. Mm-hmm. They had a pivot punch that looked like the Bagua guard, where you'd reach back and hit someone. Right. Um, it, do you, I mean, it's hard to tell, but do you think that was delivered more as a back fist or as a more like the Bagua, like a thrusting well, motion? Well, it, it, from the text, I, th- I think, I forget who, who the text is I have. I have the oldest book on boxing in, in English. It's been reprinted. It looks like they were hitting with a forearm across the back of the head. Oh, okay. I see. I yeah, see now. yeah, like that. Right. So that would make it analogous. It would be something you would do en passant, basically, yeah. passing around the corner. Absolutely. And, okay. Or you uh, rotate and step away and hit them. And the Greeks had the same thing, the, the famous Parthian shot of shooting an arrow while you're riding away. is it kind of encompasses the principle. It's basically how do you hit someone while you're walking away. And that's a damn useful skill, especially if the attack is from behind. Right. So Bagua kind of perfected that. Um, but it was in Western boxing, interestingly, and it was legal, uh, at least in the early days, in the early part of the, the 20th century. They had this thing called a pivot punch. The ancient Greeks used it in the Olympics in a, with the Pancradion, I think, also in boxing, in their boxing. It was legal, but this kind of movement of spinning around and hitting, you'll see it in mixed martial arts now, and sometimes it'll work, but their distances... Uh, are sometimes too far away, and they often don't know that it has to be based on pressure from the other person's body that makes you turn. Right. You can't just. You can't just. You spin. usually won't just throw it and have it work if there's not. If it's no. Not a, it's a counter. Yeah. Usually you don't. You don't turn your back to the person. But in Bogwai and in some tactical Shaolin, if he's shouldering you or or pulling your arm, you will rotate. You will right. turn. But it's based on what they're doing. It's not something you instigate. Without contact, it's coming off of their pressure. Well, uh, let me ask you this. This is kind of tied in on the same subject. Uh, but uh, traditional arts, uh, Chinese stuff in particular, a lot of times are, are, are fairly, I think, in a lot of cases, criticized for not really having much of a ground game. But I, I kind of have a pet theory about this. I th- uh, And you can tell me, both of you, what you think about this. Um, you know when these arts were codified and evolved, and you know up in you know eighteenth nineteenth century, there was still a very strong uh, uh, cultural wrestling tradition. Like virtually every kid in a village would yeah. do some wrestling, and they True. had you know they had their own systems from village to village or wherever you would go, you know uh, region to region. But wrestling was just like such a social cultural thing embedded in culture and it's still like if you go to Mongolia, wrestlers can be as famous as rock stars there. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um that I think that stuff was left out of these more military or you know uh more battlefield or bodyguard or whatever kind of arts because it was presumed to already be in the person's background. Well, there's a lot to that and there's a lot to village wrestling among children. Mm-hmm. Because at one time, wrestling was something all children did, so it was nearly endemic to any agriculture, a- agricultural society. 
I know I've looked at Breton wrestling and Lancashire wrestling, Cumberland wrestling. I've looked at wrestling through the British Isles and Western France. And there's even wrestling on uh, on some of the more remote islands off the coast of Europe. I think Sardinia and Corsica may actually still have some native wrestling. Mm-hmm. My point is that all agricultural societies had wrestling, and it was usually done in the spring or in the harvest time as a part of a celebration. Yeah. And it consisted mainly in throwing the other person down. So it like didn't Swigel or something. Yeah, didn't have a lot of ground. It didn't. Or, it didn't consist in follow up groundwork of any type. Um, it was how you threw them down, and that you were able to throw them down that signaled victory. Then there was varieties of his both his shoulders must must touch, or you know, he's right. obviously looks like a rag doll. I think he's out now. You know, it's this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so. Well, well, then where does something like catch wrestling get all these, you know... Well, catch, techn- catch wrestling is very peculiar because what we see is that uh, it has a kind of heyday in the early 1900s. Um, and there was a sort of crossover from agricultural wrestling to show wrestling from 1900 to about 1950. Mm-hmm. And here you got to see men who could really wrestle who were fantastic athletes... Uh, slowly um, let the sport devolve into it's your turn to win, it's my turn to win. And then it's a question of we all need to eat. Right. Uh, And so that was understandable. But at that point, then the holds became less important. And so that eventually it's largely, you know, deteriorated in pro wrestling in this country to two very talented stuntmen by the way oh yeah yeah who don't know much about actual wrestling but by god i mean it's some of the most difficult stunt work yeah. you'll see and it's hard as hell and they've got to be fit well we talked to a fellow chris yatskovich who's sort of at the vanguard of reviving the old school catch wrestling okay and he was doing wrestling and and jujitsu and stuff like that and he had a guy an old fella come into his gym one day and be like uh hey buddy you're doing that all wrong you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah he's like well okay show me old man and the guy put him in a face lock yeah and and knocked him on his ass and he hurt him so bad he didn't come back to class for two weeks but when he found the old guy again he's like all right show me what you're doing yeah so i think you know a lot of those people still had plenty of skill you know they did they had all that stuff still lined up well there's it became a matter of you know i can't beat this guy too quickly or no the next guy won't wrestle me and then i won't make any money well yeah and it's very tricky like that because these wrestlers were also managed Right. So it wasn't like they were making all the uh, the decisions. They yeah. also had a manager who wanted his cut, and then that some of them had wives and children, and they, they had to think about how much money they were going to make. So there's always this economic thing. It wasn't just about let's wrestle and see who's best. Yeah. Also, there were questions of aggression. There are some wrestlers who just trash you by ripping an arm or a leg, and that wasn't necessarily about skill. They were right. just aggressive. Right. And so there were wrestlers who actually wanted to perfect the techniques of wrestling. Like, uh, I think Earl Caddick was called the man of a thousand holds. That gives you a sense of what fluency could be like in wrestling. And then there were other guys, I forget the Englishman, who was just known for grabbing guys' legs and twisting the shit out of them. (laughs) So, you know, and then you don't walk. 
Right. And, of course, have you learned wrestling? No. Is he technically better? Not really. He's just more aggressive and violent. So these issues also enter into the, the whole evolution of wrestling. But catch wrestling, when it showed up, was basically in that, that era, era from the late 1800s up until about 1950. And the snake pit in Wigan, England, was the home of, I think it was the lightweight champion of the world at the time. It was one of the Riley brothers. And he had a, an old beat-up garage behind his house where guys would go that became known as the snake pit. And they did a kind of wrestling. Now, he was Riley, so I suspect the original name was O'Reilly. So it was an Irish family which to me may be relevant to where some of the holds may have come from, but a lot of these guys worked in the mines, and working in a mine underground all day will make you a pretty tough customer because they were on yeah. all fours digging out the walls. Right. And uh, then, they'd, then they'd meet in the evening, you know, and maybe have a beer and wrestle. And so Tear you're, the playhouse down. Yeah, yeah. so you're, you're <laughs> dealing with... Uh, you're dealing with a with a whole culture, a whole mentality. These men weren't uh, hanging around libraries. Right. They were pretty hard and tough people. So, you know, my teacher, Tim Gahagan, he went to the Riley gym and studied with Riley for a period of time before proceeding on to other countries to study wrestling. But he credited Ernie Riley with... Uh, some of the best wrestling on the planet at the time, and it was this kind of wrestling that uh, influenced a lot of catch wrestling. Um, and a lot of these holds or tricks were uh, counter counters, counters mm. and cross counters even on the floor. Right. Um, and we had, in the American tradition, a very good wrestling tradition. Now I mean the groundwork as well as the throwing down. Yeah. In Iowa. We have, a, and you know, Farmer Burns in the early 1900s, he came up from Iowa and he taught um, some of the best wrestlers of that era. And, you know, he'd later he met people like my own teacher, Tim Gahagan, and taught them things. So there's a kind of, uh, there's a deep connection to the American soil with catch wrestling because a lot of the best techniques were perfected here in the 1900s and they weren't used elsewhere because most of the wrestling around the world is the throwdown kind where you stop. Okay. Well, I guess if that's the case, then it sort of shoots my theory out of the water. Um, I guess there's other ways uh, to rationalize why there isn't any ground grappling in most traditional martial arts. Uh, or, you know, it's not focused on to the extent that it certainly is in a lot of arts today. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're thinking battlefield systems, you know, Weaponry sort of obviates the ability to get down on the ground and wrestle, and group no. combat makes that you know. Yeah, not, there's very, not, there's not very, very there's very little. If if you want to look at something really profound, anybody out there who's looking at wrestling or submission wrestling, or they're looking at catch wrestling, you can just put on a pair of brass knuckles or hold a dagger, and look at how the wrestling works or doesn't work with even the smallest weapon in your hand, and what it will force you to do is isolate to all the best angles. Uh, something else you'll see that's very fascinating is uh, to have a short weapon like a dagger or uh, a vajra or yuara stick in each hand and try to wrestle with those. That's another way to isolate the most advantageous angles. Uh, there was very little wrestling taught with weapons. They did have some in the 1500s in North India uh, in Manipur. 
I know the Tong Ta has yeah, some Kilton stuff. Yeah, yeah. Kilton Nongmaitem. I think he's in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. He has knowledge, and this is very rare stuff, of, uh, of wrestling with weapons of different kinds. Uh, so there are there are bits of that around uh, in the India subcontinent, and uh, there may be a few fencers who are cross-referencing wrestling with fencing, because in the old days they they didn't have this sense of uh, sports requirements. So if you were fighting with a cloak and dagger, it would you'd always have a neck crank available, or you wouldn't hesitate, you know, if he was going horizontal to pick up a leg. Right. Uh, these kind of things were were pretty open, and the, I think I think we live in another time again now where people are doing a lot more cross training and mixing and matching stuff than maybe yeah. was done for a while. Yeah, uh, it's true. It's when everything true. got too isolated and codified, and my system is the best, or you know, well, this is the only way to do it. Uh, but we got is, you know, we talked to a, a guy who's a fencing coach recently, and uh, he also does you know hard contact karate and all this other stuff. So anybody can play in any of these realms now, and I think and it's there's brilliant. A, there's a lot more mixing, and it's better physical education because it it involves something that we really need to bring back to schools, which is logic. Yeah. And uh, we don't teach logic, and we don't teach thinking in our schools much anymore, but when someone has a weapon, it actually forces you to consider time and geometry and angle mm-hmm. and priority. And psychology. Absolutely. These are big <laughs> things. I mean, there's, there's really a whole liberal arts education in a martial art if you teach it with that in mind. Mm-hmm. And that includes a fantastic uh, gallery or library of books and histories and accounts, because martial arts really have been a part of culture worldwide since since day one. Yeah, it's it's involved with sport. It's involved with war, uh, hunting. Yeah, and medicine particularly. If you pick up a copy of Galen, for instance, you'll find that you know when Galen was writing his medical treatises, some of his best. Some of his most descriptive and best work is about shoulder dislocations. Right. And these were all wrestlers. These are all typical flying mare or shoulder throw from the outside, which, of course, is the really frightening side because you can splinter your whole arm doing it. But these are his dislocation treatises. So, you know, for me, martial arts is uh, it's fantastic education if you approach it as education and not simply as one-upsmanship or... You know, uh, yeah. the town bully getting a trophy. Right, a way to get your ego yeah, yeah. puffed up. Yeah, I mean, you know, ideally, if the world was my Shangri-La, I'd teach martial arts to every grade in the school, and eventually a, a high school student would be learning how to shoot a black powder rifle. They would know the history of every weapon, and they would know why it was developed, and there would be no glamour attached to weapons because they understood the weapons. Right. And to me, this is huge because we've glamorized guns and weapons, and and by forbidding them and at the same time glamorizing them, what's happened to weapons is what's happened to sex. Right. I was about to say, we do that with everything in this culture. Absolutely. This is terrible, but we're going to show you lots of it. And this is it. And it's not going to be very realistic. It's going to be, you know, hero worship kind of stuff. Yeah, you see, we've... We have, we, have, we have created a market while dumbing down the entire population. But they, they bounce back. So you've got lots of guys in their garages and lots of guys in their studies looking at this stuff and doing some thinking and having some fun. 
And you got and your now usual. having the equipment, uh, you know, you can make a YouTube video and everybody can see it now. Yeah, you yeah. don't have to be, you know, the biggest school in the world no. to get any attention. No, there's there is some good stuff. There's some good cross fertilization going on with a lot of research. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of numbskull, stupid stuff. Sure. And and a lot of petty bickering about things that don't matter. And I I really think the the linchpin of the whole thing is, it's a question of of how you what you think it's for. And right. and I always look at it as it's it's for an education to make a person better at thinking, right? And that's the way I see it. And and then at that point, uh, we can get into theology, philosophy, speculation, and theories about chi. <laughs> but but I think the most important thing is it teaches people uh, what's important and how to think, and it gives them a feeling for their own body, which is ultimately the only thing we have till we right. walk out that last door. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, the people I've seen that are doing these eclectic styles now that I've been talking to, thanks to this podcast, like uh, Steve Kepfer and, and Chris, and uh, you know, um, uh, fella Ellis turned us on to. Uh, anyway, I, I'll forget names and embarrass yeah, myself, yeah. but uh, they're all really down to earth and open people, and that's what I love about. It. There's none of this, you know. My system says X Y Z is done exactly this way, and therefore that is the only way it's done. They're like. Show me your way. Let's try it. Let's see what works. And yeah. by doing that, you know, these guys can walk into open competitions and, and win. Yeah, know? it's true. It's true. And if, they're also super nice because they're wide open. They're just right. like, well, oh, that sounds cool. Let's try it. You know? Well, for me, it's, it's definitely a question of honesty. Yeah. And if you really want to know something and you're really willing to look at it, you'll find people who will work with you. Mm-hmm. Because honesty responds to honesty and integrity responds to integrity. So someone really wants to know... They'll say, well, I think this. And, and I think it's important to say, well, you know, that won't work because if you, if you do that, you're teaching your students how to stick their eye on that knife blade. <laughs> and they'll say, well, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, look, you, here, here, you come slow. Just use your finger. Don't use a knife. And I'll show them the problem. Mm-hmm. And then they'll think, oh, well, it's... It's not at all what I thought, because to be honest with you, if you don't have a martial arts education, you'll just make anything up. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, the second most dangerous person. There's yeah. the absolute know-nothing with a weapon in their hand. There's <laughs> like, an old, you have no yeah. idea what they're going to fucking There's do. an old saying, the confidence of amateurs is the envy of professionals. Yeah. So what I <laughs> the find... The Kruger effect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what I find is the older I get, the more, the more open and the more I realize there's all sorts of strange possibilities out there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as a rule, <laughs> if he punches you to the head, you should move your head out of the way. Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> Preferably before you raise your arm to block, because your head's much quicker than your arm is. Yeah, but you'll find a lot of guys who'll still take a punch and move into the correct position, which to me is you know kind of sad because I don't want to risk the concussion, nor would I teach anyone else to do that. So, right. So for me, there's definitely things you do and things you don't do. Um, but that being said, there's a sort of basic agreement among all martial arts about what's important. But sport arts, it's different because you're, you're, you've got much narrower parameters of height, weight, and chosen weapon. Mm-hmm. And the mere fact that, uh, I think we mentioned this talking to somebody before, but the fact that if you're training a sport art, you're training and you know you're going to fight. 
And you yeah. may have to fight for 15 solid minutes. Yeah. So you're going to train really damn hard because you know you have to fight and you know you may have to fight for a long time. Correct. Uh, if you're training, the average person who's just doing a martial art for fitness and for some self-defense skills and for, you know, for the fun of it and stuff like that, they're not, they're, you're more training to not fight. Right, I mean, you want to have some skills to use if you have to fight, mm-hmm. but you're sublimating your ego through the training so you don't get out there and cause fights where they don't need to happen. Yeah, well, now we're and, talking about self-defense. Right. Self-defense has the, the idea that you want to have training that will allow you to make decisions. Right. Um, competitive fighting is very different because uh, you have that 15 minutes, and then you know you do, and the conditions are all controlled. Yes. Um. But when you're looking at, say, a martial art as a battlefield system, then you realize that uh, the odds and the parameters are much wider. And you're not interested in techniques that are half effective or that score points or that create, say, conditions of ringcraft. Like, I'll get him in the fifth round. Right, right. Now, this whole idea of ringcraft is very interesting, and there's quite quite a lot of extensive Western boxing literature on on ringcraft, on on how to wear your man down in in three minute, five minute, or however many rounds that are characteristic of that era. Uh, And so that you start out one way and then you gradually change. For instance, in Western boxing, you might continually jab him under the lead arm the first three rounds. Soften it up a little bit and you know that arm's going to be slow. Yeah, and eventually that arm's coming down and around the fourth or fifth round, you're going to decide to change targets. Right. And so this ring craft thing is is the luxury of sport, but if you don't know it, you're not gonna you're not gonna get your trophy. You're not gonna get your right. money. Well, you're not gonna win the fight. No. And so, I'm not taking anything away from that because you put some you put me in a cage with somebody that's my size, but trains to do that all the yeah, time. They're gonna yeah. eat my lunch and pack me in a suitcase Absolutely. and send me right back. Out. Absolutely, because all training is specific to the objective. Right, and it sounds like we're talking about three here. You've got sport martial arts, you've got battlefield martial arts, yeah. where you know it's much more direct and simplified. But you can also there's a concept there of you are a pawn and a strategy. Yeah, um, and then the third concept would be modern day which is what most people train martial arts for now modern day self-defense basically just getting through life alive right and you're only you may never fight again mm-hmm. but that's good you know yeah. and if your training just makes you more fit and confident and makes you look like less of a target yeah. then it's done its job already well, that's that's the point that's and the you point. know and just your your training to be good enough if it does happen those one or two times you can get yourself or your family out of that alley into the car you know that's really as far as you're, well <laughs> this is yeah you've broken it down to the essential elements and that's what it's about and that's very di- – it's the whole dynamic of self-defense is radically different, and this is why it's – it's you know, you congratulate a guy for being able to go however many rounds and win. Mm-hmm. But if he tries to use that same strategy on the street, he may or may not be successful right. because his priority well, scheme is different. Right. Now, to these guys' credit – a lot of them know that it's not the same as in the ring on the street. Exactly. So they will change their strategy. And when they do that, they're usually hella fit if they're actively competing. Absolutely. And so they have some huge advantages over the average guy walking around. Well, I would say, I would say overall fitness, the level of fitness usually determines who survives because you can walk away and then have a heart attack. Right. So yeah, there's different levels of survival here. Yeah, and and I would say an endurance really figures into this, and this has been proven over and over, 
in survival conditions, whether it was a plane crash or uh, 99 rounds of boxing bare knuckle in the old in the old school where they dropped right. to a knee and that was a round. I didn't knock him out, but his heart finally exploded. Yeah. <laughs> well, what you found was the guy who didn't get tired is the guy that won. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might say, well, if I have a sword, that doesn't matter. Well, it's not that simple because the guy that doesn't get tired can can play can play longer than you can. Right. I mean, and, if you're dueling with swords, then, yeah, you're in trouble if he can do it longer because he can be very conservative and just keep you moving until you uh, gas and then take advantage of it, no, just like in the ring. And a, a technically skillful guy, he may have poor endurance, but he may... He may win because he's got really good techniques. That is a possibility. Right. But if you're looking at overall outcomes right. in all conditions, uh, strength and endurance are the determining factors. Technique or not, because when you get tired, you fall to gross motor skills. Yeah. And, and that means you're too... So the quicker you get tired, the less benefits you get from the technique you've trained. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. And if, if, you're, uh, if, you, if you're... How can I say this? In fencing, for instance, it's very hard on the heart, especially if you fence in, a, in an old style because you're controlling the rapier or the, the main gauche or whatever with two fingers. Mm-hmm. And when you're squeezing something with two fingers, the taxation on the muscles in the arm going all the way up into the heart is tremendous. The level of stress on the heart because two fingers are having to articulate continually is incredible. Hmm. And you, you can even get angina pains from this kind of technique. So the, that's fine motor. That's a fine motor skill, and it's extremely taxing to the heart. But if you have a blade and you've trained with that technique, your heart is up to it. Yeah. But if you haven't and you pick up that blade and you try to use fine motor skills, you may very quickly find yourself with chest pains. Hmm. That's interesting. So what I'm saying is weaponry, especially involving the fingers, develops very particular strengths in the arm and the heart that often go unnoticed, especially if you have tournament electrified fencing where you hold the weapon with a closed fist and it's electrified and you can just kind of punch away. Yeah. Now, when we were talking about fencing, you might find this interesting. <clears throat> One of the things that came up was there's probably... he the. Dane DeRose is the fellow's name, and he was uh, he was saying uh, it, you're probably going to see a resurgence of more Spanish style fencing because mm-hmm. now that once they get remote electric, yeah, so you're not on a tether, yeah. and stuck on that strip, right? He, he thinks you can you're going to see more, you know, lateral movement. That's and more, better skill, more variety. Yeah, fencing on the strip uh, is is extremely limited. It's like boxing on the strip or doing anything else forward and back. It's very very limited lateral movement. Is is uh, is the main hope for the smaller men, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the way he explained it was um, uh, the judges had to be able to see what was going on. Well, and if people was, were constantly turning. You yeah. couldn't see what was happening. And so it's yeah. like, all right, you're going to have to do it in a straight line. Well, they used to post four judges to four corners who would watch, mm-hmm. and of course, if the man was cut, you know, he he would concede that there had been a cut, and the doctor would come and check it. You know, in the old duels, right? But. Uh, but then as it became more sportive, it was a question of, did you see him touch him or not? Right. And, and then and, it gets political. Oh, and then it's, yeah. well, you know. <laughs> and boxing is a lot easier because one guy's on the floor face up and the other guy's standing up, you know. Although there have been plenty of uh, contested decisions when neither yes. one of them winds up on the floor. It's true. And uh, 
and that and that's always uh, where the politics moves in, mm-hmm. uh, especially if neither concedes defeat. But as you go, you know, it's interesting as you go further back in boxing. There's less and less problem with who concedes defeat. Right. I don't know what happened with the sportsmanship, but there was a change up because it, there was a period of time where boxing was uh, almost honest. You know, prior to 1950, when it, when a when a fight was still putting a steak on your plate, and men were desperate right. and hungry, <laughs> like there, Charles Bronson in Hard Times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a yeah, there was a kind of a. I'll uh, fight you for that dead squirrel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, to us now it seems kind of corny, but the fact is that people live that way. Oh yeah, especially coming out of the depression, there was yeah. a there was a lot of sort of diehard honesty. And if a guy hit you, you'd say, oh, he, he smacked me good. Mm-hmm. You just admit it. Yeah. But, but now there's a lot of uh, kind of evasion. and. Well, there's also a ton of money at stake a lot of times. Uh, or things have changed, though, oh, definitely. Yep. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yep. We're already living in another depression. We just don't know. Well, no, it's all, <laughs> hey, it's a world of propaganda. What? It's not what it is. It's what we say it is. That's right. Now, the other thing I wanted, so. I wanted to bring up, you, we talked about rhythmic training and how that was important for honing the body as far as movement habit. Yeah. And I wanted to cross-reference that with arrhythmic training, which means your, your partner attacks you in different ways. Broken rhythm. Broken rhythm. So he doesn't even do it every five seconds. He waits. He makes you anticipate. And then mm-hmm. he moves. Right. And then, he, then he, might, he might attack you three times in succession and then back off and wait for seven seconds. This kind of arrhythmic training is extremely exhausting and unnerving. Yeah. But it does give you critical timing and response. Well, that's one of the first transitions from just purely learning. Like if you're doing applications with somebody, you yeah. do very rhythmically, very smoothly and slowly to minimize injury and give people a chance to comprehend what it is they're doing. Well, you ha- this is all good pedagogy. This is all good teaching. You've got to, they've got to be taught in a graduated way so they're actually learning yeah. and understanding what they're doing. We don't throw them in the water not learning to swim. Yeah, but with that first step over the line into taking it up a little bit more realistic is – you know, they're used to the rhythmic stuff. You're like, okay, it looks like he's got it now. You break your rhythm. Yeah. And they freak out. They throw the tactic. And, they, yeah. uh, you know, it's, and it's like, no, you need, to, you need to react to what's actually there, not what you think is coming. Mm-hmm. you gotta, you got to tamp that tobacco down in the, in the pipe and light it. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is good. But ultimately, you know, my feeling is it's very important to, to, to cross-reference Rhythmical training to really hardwire the body with arrhythmical partner work from all conceivable angles with broken rhythm. Mm -hmm. It's both of those things that are synthesized to give you what I would call a martial arts skill. Yeah. And sometimes training is deficient one way or the other. I really think that both are, are almost equally important. Yeah. Uh, and then I would add to that uh, weight training or auxiliary training or this kind of thing. General fitness. General fitness, bag punching, that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly the, the old texts uh, in Chinese indicated that the men who were doing martial arts were generally good all-round athletes. Mm-hmm. And they generally had all three of those elements in their training one way or another. Yeah. 
Yeah. You can, and you can't you can't lift your training partner over your head and throw him on his face because no. you'll only get to do that once. Right. But you can lift weights and mimic that. And yes. Actually, and just like you can't hit your partner full power when you're training all the time. Yeah. Or you won't have that guy to train with anymore. Right. But you can you can test that part of it on the bag or yeah. on the you, know, you definitely and you definitely need a bag to to let loose on. Yeah. Uh, whether with empty hand or weapons, you mm-hmm. also need an object to to pierce, cut, or chop with a weapon. Well, there's a lot of people out there can that can swing a mean nunchuck as long as they don't hit anything with it. But as soon as they do, it comes right back and hits them in the forehead. And that, <laughs> I've been that guy before. I, <laughs> oh, I know. You know uh, I won't lie. They're not called nutcrackers for nothing. So mm-hmm. that's. That's another aspect, uh, hitting, you know, the, the Romans and all the old cultures, they would train with overweight wooden swords and hit a pell, which was basically like a, a tree. Post, yeah. Yeah. And that was sort of the grounding for the wooden man and then heavy bags was the use of the pell. Mm-hmm. And, and the pell or the tree was also used in India to practice wrestling holds on. So the, the idea of having an object to practice hitting, bumping, touching, squeezing, whatever all the cultures had it it was considered a necessity of training so Mm -hmm. no culture depended purely on choreography or even on choreography and two-man work they they all wanted that that element of additional power that came from hitting an object so that's pretty standard or just, you know, the Chinese, and we joke about this on the podcast, and we call it a secret gong or something, but just, you know, little piddly things that you develop by using some sort of training tactic or device. Yeah. Like, I kick the shit out of the ball for Angus. I'm just giving you an example. Yeah. All the time. And I, my my sneaky, you know, ankle and shin kick is brilliant now. Yeah, absolutely. Because I practiced it 10,000 times with that damn dog. <laughs> right. And I can sure. send that rubber ball all the way to the fence in a dead straight line. That's you know, exactly I, right. I just, it's like putting a chin-up bar in the door doorway and doing one chin up every time you walk by yeah yeah uh, eventually you're yeah a chin up master uh, yeah you know? <laughs> so and and the asians were very savvy about this so they had this idea of doing something a little every day that's where the idea came from so they weren't as as good about uh train like hell and then knock yourself out and rest three days Right. They had this idea that you were going to kind of sneak up on your body and gradually give yourself some ungodly strange skill. Right. Like the uh, the old master who uh, used to have his students put their hands on top of a paper on a table, and they had to wad up the paper with the fingers without lifting the palm. Okay. Okay? Yeah. And that paper eventually increased thicknesses and eventually became sandpaper. Now, what happens with the hand is it it develops a callus, but you really get tremendous range of movement in the fingers like a musician. Yeah. But you get it with strength. So if this person ever got hold of your hide, you were really going to go. I was going to say skin and clothing. Yeah. So they had all sorts of ideas about uh, how to give yourself some special skill. And and these are often not referenced with uh, learning a system. They'll just say, well, he learned Xingyi, but... He could punch better than everybody else, but it's never real clear that he went out back every day and hit a 300-pound sandbag for 20 minutes. Right. You, you know, <laughs> right. they don't say that. They right. just said he had a great punch. And so we have to connect the dots and, and figure that figure out what that is. And usually there's enough clues. In Luckily, the, the human body lit. hasn't changed that much since then either, so <laughs> it's always possible to reverse engineer something. I think so. I think uh, with a little bit of logic, you can usually figure out most stuff, and I, I think there's enough evidence there to, to show it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. 
Well, we've, uh, you know, I told you 20 minutes and we've had you gabbing for about an hour now, and I know you got a long drive ahead of you, but. Well, yeah, it's got to gotta get back up to the mountain before the women burn the house down. Y'all you know? <laughs> ain't got no women in there. Uh, <laughs> well, I know. Oh, 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 yeah. Be quiet. There she is. Be quiet. There's my woman. Oh. <laughs> Scared me to death. I thought it was someone I knew. Piping in anyway. just a little floating head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the peephole into the podcast. <laughs> We're in here in the veal pen. You guys check us out. Sarah <laughs> is there. Yes, she is. Uh-huh. Yeah, contrary to popular belief, Pittman did not come out of an egg. I've met his mother. <laughs> she's, a, she's a real person. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's one. That's one. Steel iron Victorian lady that survived World War II in England. She's a real character. No, she is. Well, yeah. before we let you go, uh, tell people where to find your website and how to keep up with what you're doing. You're doing a lot of European travel. Well, and- I am. I'm doing a lot. I sort of, this last year has been uh, kind of up and down, but basically I'm in about six countries. A lot of my work is in France and Switzerland, a little bit in England. I went up to Denmark for a while last last year and... Uh, that's where I'll probably be October, November. Uh, I did a little work with the Department of Defense this year, which was oh, very interesting. In- very interesting, yeah. I didn't hear about that. If you tell me about it, will you have to kill me? No, no, but <laughs> it's, just, it's, just a, it's just kind of a cornucopia of, of doing different things and having to cover a lot of miles. Right. And I've just been kind of folding my wings the last month or two trying to just get back in shape. Because you know you're not as I'm not as young as I used to be anyway, and uh, oh, neither am I. I yeah, I think we're aging roughly the same, right? Uh, yeah, roughly, <laughs> roughly. So uh, that's what's going on. The web web page is www.a as in alpha a pitman p i t t m a n dot com. It may be a bit up and down. I might get some new technology to have immediate footage available to download. Okay. Yeah, I saw some work had been going on over there. Yeah, so what I want to do is uh, show a technique and the training for it in the application in like 10 to 15-minute segments so people can spend the minimum amount of money and learn the maximum amount of information in a short time. Right. So that's kind of where I'm going with uh, the online teaching thing yeah yeah that's a brave new world there several people are trying it it's going to be interesting to see how that develops as you know as bandwidth gets better and well my 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 thing on that is it's a lot easier than having to burn a dvd and mail it right that that becomes uh quite a strategical that becomes quite a formality of having to, to buy and keep up with stock and mail and Right. And the expenses of, you know, postal service and all the rest. So this may, in some ways, make my life easier, and I'll drop my prices, of course, because it'll be a straight download. Yeah. But a lot will, you know, depend on uh, the tech and the price of the tech and what's going on. And other than that, you know, after Europe this year, I'm not sure what's up. You know, my life, like everyone else's in this economy, is in it. In a floating uncertainty. Yeah. So I basically have the single policy of I seem to be able to eat if I keep moving. Right. So mobility seems like to, a shark. Yeah. Keep see, moving and you'll eat. <laughs> some of the old, uh, some of the Aikidaka in uh, Paris said, "Oh yes, you're the man who cannot be hit because you are never still." You know, <laughs> <laughs> the wandering nomad. You know. That's right. So they kind of needle me about it, and uh, it's kind of in the family blood to wander. I'm actually hoping to to stabilize because now, well into middle age, I'm thinking it'd be nice to have a house and a vegetable garden and a dog. 
Yeah. And I really haven't had those kind of thoughts because I've been too busy globe trotting. But uh, well, look, whenever you're in town, you can come visit our dog and our. <laughs> house in our vegetable garden wait we don't have one of those we got children though you yeah. can one of those yeah. well if i keep hanging around you'll probably have a vegetable garden at this rate yeah okay all right folks uh we'll talk to you again oh damn i'm gonna break my knee on the mic uh yeah that's it for that part <laughs> where have the good times gone a thousand songs and conversations have ascended these rafters and floorboards Remember my final days of crowding kitchens Remember the kitchen songs Grief has had its way too long Grief has had its way too long Folks, we're back. That was a good time. Indeed it was. Ah, <laughs> oh, frightening Aaron with the confusing bits of uh, how this recording actually comes together. Yeah, this is my second time. <laughs> Trying to put himself in the right headspace. A lot more listening between last yeah. time and this time. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, before... Uh, oh, my eyes are shut. But before we move along, uh, I got this from uh, Cylon Matrix, I believe, on uh, Twitter. And I thought I would share it with everyone because it... it, it it warmed the cockles of my heart and brought a smile to my face, okay? So there's a game. It's an Ike game called Bring the Beer or Die. Three sensei, the masters, sit comfortably on a couch. One Ikyu, the guardian, sits in Seiza in front of the couch a few feet away with a shinai on his hand, in his hands. All the kids are sitting in Seiza on the other side of the guardian. When one of the masters claps once, all the kids should run to the dodo fridge and bring a beer. When the master claps twice, all the kids should run to the fridge and bring a good beer. When the master claps three times, the kids should bring foreign beer. As they approach the couch with beers in their hands, the guardian swings the shinai, trying to whack them on the heads as they pass by. She can only move on her knees while the kids can run around her. 
So the challenge for the guardian is to smack as many of them little rats as she can. <laughs> the challenge for the kids is to be able to recognize a good beer from a bad one, uh, from a foreign one, early on in life. <laughs> to obey their elders, to bring beer quickly and efficiently, <laughs> and to be able not to drop or spill any of the beer, regardless of circumstances. <laughs> it's an excellent exercise of key, awareness, centeredness, and extension. The challenge for the masters, of course, is to be able to drink all the beer brought to them. To do otherwise would not be polite. <laughs> the parents, of course, provide the beer needed for the exercise. <laughs> this is getting better by the minute. <clears throat> the beer metaphor, by the way, is a very powerful one since almost all can relate to it. Por ejemplo, when we do uh, Saito-style practice, it is very important to get a really strong grip. Many can't do that. They just give you that wimpy, soft, sleazy grip. <laughs> When sensei, when sensei tells them, imagine you're squeezing a can of beer in your hand and someone's trying to take it away from you. You would not believe what a powerful grip this results in. Similarly, when we do uh, kokyu dosa and someone can't bring his arms up because their partner might not cooperate, the sensei might say, imagine that you're holding a can of beer in both hands and you're trying to take a sip while your mama and that boy sway. Wait, <laughs> sorry. While your mama holds your hands, preventing you from doing so. <laughs> Can you take a sip? And that boy swings arms up, swings arms and all up, and throws Uke 10 feet away. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Poor reading there. Full body power. Mm -hmm. Also, when someone does Tenshinagi and there's not enough extension in the heaven hand, since they might say, imagine that you have a beer on the very top shelf behind Uke, but there's no ladder. Now reach for that beer. And the extension resulting is truly wonderful. <laughs> Y'all ought to try it sometimes. Love, Ivan. Uh, that's brilliant. Inner bliss through harder contact. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was funny enough. I had to share it with everyone. And uh, you know, now that the idea is in my head, next time you come to visit, I'm going to have a, a game for you and Manrith and, and some of the other fellows to play. All right. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll let Mickey be the one on his knees with the wooden sword. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bruised already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, yeah, at least from the kneecaps down. Uh. Uh. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. Uh huh. All right. Well, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up this scintillating episode of? Uh... Oh, I just thought you, the thing you just read was very uh, interesting because I remember you talking about. I don't know. I think we were doing static palms or something and how you want to go back and rename all the palms and then all the Chinese forms like, you know, construction worker carries drywall or, you know. well, yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, it's easier for me to remember that way. Totally. Because if you've been listening to this podcast, you realize I know speaky Chinese <laughs> a little bit, mm -hmm. a little idion, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. Oh gosh. And it just it just serves to mystify things, in my opinion, a lot of the time. So well, you know. Right. 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 Does all does, don't yeah, concentrate make it, on the fancy name and the you know the poetry behind it until right. you're doing that in your spare time and you already know how to do the right the physical part. And you know, I think sometimes it's like it's metaphor like codified to give the idea of how the movement should be done like reach as if you know there's a beer on the top shelf behind right, the person right. that's blocking no, there, you from it. And, there, Often they're descriptive in, in useful ways. Yeah. And there are some movements like, uh, you know, uh, it's okay to have a line of kids practicing a movement called Grass Pearls and Remove from Cave. <laughs> but, you know, if you just called it 
grab nuts, twist and rip. Yeah. You know, you might have some angry parents uh, yeah. around. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or a bunch of nutless kids in the parking lot. So you got to hide. You got to hide the functionality of that one until they get a little maturity. You know, you can't just tell them what that's for. Yeah, I just keep doing the movement. Yep, yep. No. Make up some horrible uh, fake application so they can't hurt anybody. <laughs> sure, fool! I keep doing that and it doesn't work. Quit picking fights, and I'll show you how it actually works. <laughs> right. See, inner door. The, mm. uh, the tests. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you ready to get back on that big old jet plane? Oh man, it'll be, it, it'll be a few hours of flying. I have a, a layover in Phoenix, but it's only like an hour, not long. It's probably enough to get through the airport and maybe grab something to eat. Yeah. Make it to your connection. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if that's it. No, no. We'll... I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> it's okay, buddy. We got a whole podcast here. We don't have to. We don't have to fill time. Right, right. We don't have to make shit up just to entertain people. Right. I just we we've just been having all these conversations. I'm like, oh, I know we've had a million this... conversations. You know, guess what? When you get your thoughts together on it, we'll Skype you in and we can talk about. All oh, right, it. totally. Okay. How's sounds, that work? That sounds great. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> We're gonna take the pressure off of Aaron here and uh, get his shit packed so we can get him to the Marta station. Mm-hmm. And all you people out there in Haya Land, thanks a lot. Contact us at uh, www. Um, uh, iTunes, all the other podcatchers. Uh, you can email us at uh, mailbag at highoppodcast.com and Dave and or Craig at highoppodcast.com. And uh, shout out to all. Uh, we've had a couple of listeners that have been really helpful lately, <clears throat> helping us get show notes and other stuff together. Cheers to you folks. That's so awesome. Yep. And uh, also, uh, I just want to say, stick around. Listen to Jeff Westfall's segment after this. There's a few more minutes of fun coming at you. And uh, that aside, we will see ya. Bye. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. How do you know? If you train in the martial arts, or if you watch movies or video purporting to portray martial arts, you have heard claims and seen portrayals of the effects of various fighting techniques. Some examples might include the old myth that you can kill a man by driving his nose into his brain using the palm heel strike, the cliched knockout chop to the back of the neck with a knife hand strike, and what I call the chiropractic kill, in which one actor twists another's neck to appear to break it. Don't be misled by such depictions. The producers of TV and movies are not bound by any law or regulation requiring them to portray fighting realistically. When I was a young man training in karate, my instructor would sometimes make statements like, This technique will knock your opponent out, or This kick will blow out your opponent's knee. 
I always wanted to ask the question, how do you know that? Have you yourself ever done that to someone? Have you ever tried and failed? If so, what was the ratio of success to failure? In my more than 40 years in the martial arts, I have experienced a wide range of success and failure with a number of techniques. On two different occasions, I've managed to knock sparring partners unconscious with a simple boxing jab. One of them weighed well over 250 pounds compared to my relatively light 150 pounds at the time. Now, please don't misconstrue my purpose for saying this. I'm not trying to sing my own praises regarding my punching power. I've also landed many thousands of jabs with less or even no effect. These two knockouts are simply evidence that, you, that if you have a large enough statistical sample, you will occasionally see outliers and anomalous results. So what do I tell my students that a jab will do? The Muay Thai round kick is famous for its devastating power. I personally have been out of commission for months from compartment syndrome, Google it if you want to know what that means, of the quadriceps muscle from tie kicks. A tie kick also once fractured my left forearm, and yet I once took a hard tie kick directly to the throat and, much to my delighted relief and surprise, was only mildly bruised. So what do I tell my students that a Muay Thai round kick will do? The truth is that martial arts techniques can produce an entire range of results. And to me, a competent, responsible instructor should make you aware of the various possible results and what results are more probable. When an individual makes an absolute statement like my old instructor used to, he or she is making what some skeptics refer to as a truth claim. When you hear someone making a truth claim, it's very important to use your critical thinking skills to evaluate this claim. These are skills everyone should cultivate in order to avoid being misled by faulty truth claims. Without critical thinking skills, you are vulnerable to predatory individuals who want to con you out of your money or gain power or influence over you. Thus, critical thinking skills constitute a form of self-defense, a very powerful and effective one. Under normal circumstances, you might verbally express skepticism to an individual who makes a truth claim and perhaps debate the merits of the claim with them. But in the setting of a martial arts class, it would be inappropriate to debate with your teacher. Instead, you could silently use your critical thinking skills to evaluate the claim and perhaps later do some independent research of your own. Critical thinking skills help to, to develop what the famous communicator of science Carl Sagan called your baloney detector, or if you like more explicit terminology, your bullshit detector. An interesting discovery of brain science shows that we tend to turn off, or at least turn way down, our bullshit detector in the presence of a charismatic leader or mentor figure. So the challenge during martial arts classes is to display a respectful demeanor while being on guard in the privacy of your own thoughts. Describing critical thinking skills extensively and in depth is beyond the scope of this presentation. If you're interested in learning more, you should do some research. There are excellent online resources to check out. Critical thinking skills are mental self-defense skills and make an excellent complement to your physical self-defense skills. Don't just take my word for it, though. Talk it over with people whose opinion you respect and let me know what you think at my website, rpmartialarts.com. This has been Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain.